Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm so thankful to be um, with you, Church of the Resurrection, uh, this beginning of ordinary time. If you didn't notice, we've shifted to the color green. Um, If you have one of those printed bulletins, you'll see it marked on there, ordinary time. We follow what's called the church calendar. It's a different way of ordering time. It's a different way of numbering our weeks. And uh, I'll tell you, over time, it'll have a big impact on you if you'll follow along with us. We've just come through big high and holy seasons Uh, the season of Advent and Christmas and then Epiphany and then Lent and then we go into Easter and then right at the end of the Eastertide season, we we went to Pentecost and Ascension and Trinity Sunday and now we're green and now we're ordinary. That's what we often think, ordinary. Ordinary doesn't mean plain. Ordinary doesn't mean boring. The idea of this season is actually for it to be a time of ordered progress and growth in God's kingdom. I came across this this last week. I'd never heard anybody say this. I loved it. If you need to call it a season, call it kingdom tide. You know, we have Christmas tide. We have Easter tide. What is this? Kingdom tide. Learning to grow up as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The green really signifies our growth. And that's what we're going to be focusing on. And Luke, the gospel writer Luke, It's going to continue to be our guide throughout 2022. We've made it all the way up to the middle of Luke, Luke chapter 9. That's the passage you just heard read. And I want you to go ahead and turn there and kind of hold your place because we're going to be looking at this passage in Luke 9 today. There's a major turning point in time. Now, we're shifting to this new season, but we've come up on a passage where there's a major turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus because up to this point in time, for eight chapters, Luke has been showing us stories that are asking one question, and that question is, who is Jesus? Who is he? From chapter one of Luke all the way to chapter eight, that's been the question. And there's been these varied answers. If you went all the way back to chapter 4, people were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? That's who he is. You get down to chapter 7, and some are saying he's a great prophet. Um, The disciples even ask in chapter 8, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Then people began to sort of grumble and wonder, like maybe he's one of the prophets that's come of old. And Uh, Right here in this passage in Luke 9, Jesus has just done this great miracle. 5,000 or more people have been fed with just a small amount of bread and fish, and everyone's pretty excited about who Jesus is. And he withdraws in that moment, and he spends some time in, in prayer, and he's sort of reflecting over this, this moment. There's this great momentum when you get up into Luke 9. And did you know Jesus just sort of crushes the momentum of the crowds? He does the opposite of whatever church, what, what any church planter or pastor would ever do. Everybody's super excited about who he is. They can't wait to follow him. And Jesus, Jesus seems to, in this passage, kind of pour cold water on that. Why? Well, because they had a misunderstanding about who he was. And so he turns to his disciples and he says to them, we've been asking this question for eight chapters and then we get to this moment and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, 
First question, who do the crowds say that I am? You see, in every age, in every culture, the crowds of people around us will have an idea of who Jesus is. And it's important if you're his follower to be aware of who the crowds say that Jesus is. And so he asked his disciples, who do the crowds around you say that I am? And they give the answers. They give the common answers and they you know, kind of roll through it. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, um, maybe you're one of the old prophets of old, and there's this kind of list of options that are given. And then you know this passage, if you've been around Luke at all, the turning point of Luke 9 is when Jesus turns to his disciples, and you have to imagine his inflection, the, the, the cadence slows, because this is an eternal question. And the question is, who do you say that I am? Okay, so all the crowds may answer those things, but disciples, Peter, James, John, name them off. Who do you say that I am? And as is his custom, Peter sort of blurts out an answer. He's got the answer right, even though his understanding of the answer is really shallow. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He gets the answer right. I'm not questioning that. But Jesus, knowing that the crowds are fascinated by him, knowing that the disciples have kind of a shallow understanding of what it means to be his disciple, what it means for him to be the Christ, now throughout chapter 9 and the next nine chapters, this gives you an idea of where we're headed over the rest of the summer, Jesus is going to deepen their understanding of him as the Messiah, and he's going to deepen their understanding of what it means to be his disciple. And what I see in summary are two simple things, that if you see him for who he is, you will become this kind of disciple. You'll, you'll see these two things. And I'm going to first say it's this, that Jesus is Lord of all. This is what you first have to come to realize if you are his disciple. You first have to see that Jesus is Lord of all. He is not just your tribal private Messiah. Jesus is Lord of all. He is not just your little private or tribal Messiah. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, a few years later, Peter's going to preach his first sermon in Nazareth, and he's going to proclaim the Holy One, the Lord in Christ. Did you know there's over 200 titles for Jesus Christ in the Scripture? Over 200 different ways of referring to who the God-man Jesus Christ is. And yet, in the midst of all of that complexity and depth and richness, there's one thing that you have to get clear if you're going to say that you're a follower of him. I bet most people in this room would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I consider myself to be a follower of him. If you do, then you have to be clear on this. Jesus is Lord. This became the key phrase the motto, if they had sort of a motto among the apostles in the early church, it was this, Jesus is Lord. It became the phrase that the early church was known for, that like in the midst of you coming to know all of who he is and all the richness of who he is, you have to get this one thing clear, Jesus is Lord. And Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the chosen one, you're the one that's going to right all wrongs. Peter, you're right in saying that I'm the Messiah. Jesus responds to him in another parallel reading. 
But that doesn't mean we come to find out that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom in the way that Peter envisioned it. Peter envisioned a tribal Messiah, a Messiah that would turn over the Roman government and sort of make his tribe, the people of Israel, you know, secure. That he would restore peace and shalom for them and even just for them. His understanding of the Messiah is still small, even though the answer is right. They come to the place where they see him as this, but Jesus won't let them tame him into their own little private tribal Messiah. In fact, Jesus gets really in their face over this chapter. He is Lord of all. He is Lord over all creation. He is Lord over every tribe and tongue. Did you know that Jesus is Lord over every part of your life? Your body, your souls, your minds. He is Lord over all. He will not let you tame him to be Lord over one little compartment of your life or Lord over maybe your select little group that you like, your little tribe. He won't let you tame him. When Jesus turns to us and he says, who do the crowds say that I am in this 21st century Western North American culture? In what ways do we try to minimize who Jesus is? We're really, you got to know this. Scripture is so wonderful in in many ways because it's so honest about the human condition. And the human condition is such that that we tend to do just what they did. We tend to try to tame him and think, oh, well, I'd like to follow him because I think I get a lot of benefits thrown in for me and my people. I don't know about the rest of the world, but he begins to challenge that. I was um, in my early 20s and we moved to North Carolina and I was the youth pastor of a church that met in a gym, an Anglican church plant. And, uh, you know, I had been a youth pastor for a while and thought I knew a thing or two and uh, in the time of greeting, a family came up and he shook my hand. I've told this years ago to some of you. Some, some of you know where this is headed. And I said, I, I'm the pastor over student ministries here. And the gentleman said, oh, I wouldn't call it student. That's not a, that's not a great thing to call it. Oh, okay. Um, well, what, what, what should I call it? I, youth is probably the best thing. And he just very authoritatively began to give me some, some pointers and I thought, man, I wonder who this guy is. Who does he think he is? And I, I didn't like bow up, but I just thought, that's kind of an awkward thing. Well, afterwards, my pastor came and says, his name is Dr. Christian Smith. He just published the book on teenage spirituality in North America entitled Soul Searching. And you should have coffee with him because you would learn a ton from him. And he ends up being an incredibly gracious, wonderful person. And indeed, he has not only written a book that, that captures the heart of spirituality among the youth culture in North America, he has captured who the crowds say Jesus is in our culture, and it transcends any one generation. And his conclusion is this. We don't have time to go into it in detail, but here it is. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. He believes the religion of the day that claims to be the Christian religion is actually moralistic, therapeutic deism. The book is worth reading. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler or cosmic therapist, Christian Smith writes. He is always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves. And he does not become too personally involved in the process. 
this version of who God is, of who Jesus is, is he's exceedingly tolerant. He's radically undemanding. In the creed of MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, the keynote of the creed is self-improvement. That's the great moral imperative of which we're all to be held accountable. Let me ask it this way. What is the highest good in your household? What is the vision of the good life that you are putting forth in your own life, in your own home? Whether you have a family or you do not, what is the vision of the good life in your household? It says something, your vision of the good life, about who you believe God is and who you believe Jesus is. And what Jesus clarifies here is that he is Lord of all, over all of life. He will not be tamed to just be your little private compartmentalized Messiah or your just tribal group Messiah. He's Lord over all. One of my favorite writers and Christians in Christian history that came to understand this was the famous German theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer because he came to the place where he almost fell in love with the idea of Jesus. He, 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 two PhDs, just an incredibly brilliant theologian in mind. And as he began to journey around the world and as he began to wrestle with who the crowds say that Jesus is, and then Jesus turns to Diedrich and says, but who do you say that I am? And he came to the place where he realized that if I consider myself to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, he must be Lord of all. This will impact every area of your life. And that's when he penned the words that are so famous when he says, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a person, he bids them to come and die. To die? Wait a minute, isn't Jesus inviting us to abundant life? Why why this talk of death? Isn't Jesus inviting us to the good life? Why would you talk about sacrifice and hardship? What Jesus is telling us is that the way to abundant life is a way in this world that knows how to die to the wrong things. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. What Jesus is going to show us is that if we really want to follow him, he's going to have to close the gap in our understanding of what it means to be his disciple. I was asking before the service if anybody knew what smelling salts were. You know what a smelling salt is? I, I, for what, somehow I managed to get through West Texas football without smelling salt. I don't know how that happened. But if you've ever seen a hockey game, it's actually illegal, I understand, in boxing. But way back in the day, boxers would actually use it. When you sort of get knocked over the head and you're feeling really fatigued or you just don't really have your bearings, you can put this concoction of chemicals right under your nostrils and take a big whiff and it's not really a pleasant experience. But what it'll do is it will shock you into consciousness and awareness What Jesus does here in the three encounters of people that come to him is he puts the smelling salt under their nose and ours. And he wakes us up to the reality of what it means to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm his disciple. I'm a learner that's patterning my life after his. He puts the salt, and I gotta tell you, it kind of causes your nose to tingle and your face gets to look a little funny. I was told I needed to keep somebody awake. I, I didn't bring the smelling salts today, 
But I hope that you see in these three encounters, there's these three moments. These three people come and Jesus is so forceful. It's, it's out of character for me in a way. I, I love the, the gentleness of Christ, the, the just perfect shepherd that he is. And sometimes you, I, I miss holding that intention with this sort of smelling salt version of Jesus because one young man comes to him and he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I'm like, sign him up. He's ready. He knows what it takes. Jesus senses that there's something wrong, actually, behind the scenes of this grandiose statement. And he says to the man, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You don't understand what it means to follow me. Another person comes to him and says, I would love to follow you, but first let me go and bury my my parents who have just died. And he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Who is this Jesus? And what in the world does he have against, you know, homes and funerals and possessions and family? And you know the answer is Jesus doesn't have anything against funerals and possessions and homes, but he understands that if our hearts are not rightly ordered, we will turn good things into God things and we'll make them idols. We'll actually transfer the deed of our hearts over to those gifts instead of to him. And he wants to clarify that if you're his disciple, you'll know that he's Lord of all. And then second, and the last thing for today, is that if he is Lord of all, he will become your first love. He'll become your first love. We said at the beginning of this calendar year, at our annual vision meeting, one of our goals, it kind of maybe seems odd to, to, to reach for this as a goal, but would be to return to our first love as a church, as a congregation. What do we mean by that? Well, sometimes you and I can go about life in such a way that Jesus ends up being like a a side item thrown in at lunch today. I'll take a little Elijah, a little John the Baptist, a little prophet risen from the dead, and yeah, a little bit of Jesus as the Messiah thrown in. I'll take my career, I'll take my family, I'll take my wealth, I'll take my possession, and I'll have a side of Jesus thrown in with it. He's a divine butler for the suburban household. That's who the crowds say that Jesus is. I've noticed in trying to learn to teach my children to pray, I'm still learning to pray. I'm very much still learning to teach my children to pray that we often end up praying to God as if he's a divine butler or cosmic therapist. Your prayers, our prayers, my prayers are so revealing. Is he Lord of all? Is he our first love? Has he reordered the desires of your heart? I'll follow you wherever you go, this young man says. Uh, I'll follow you, but first let me. If you look at these three encounters throughout this week, you'll see that the problem is not that Jesus has something against you owning a home or you loving your family. It's the order of things. It's that these things become first loves. In fact, one of the characters actually says, I'll follow you, but first A disciple of Jesus comes to know he's Lord of all creation. He's not just my little private salvation Messiah guy. He's Lord over all, but that means that he will eventually become your first love. He will reorder your desires such that there is not the answer, yeah, I'll follow you, but first let me secure the thing I really worship and then I'll follow you. 
And I love that Jesus, our gracious, smelling salt Messiah, includes the word daily. That what this will require of you and me is a journey of a lifetime of dying a daily death to self. This is not a once-in-a-lifetime thing that you just do it and then, great, done. I now no longer have to worry about ego. I now no longer have to worry about living for possessions or wealth or family or any of these other idols. No, daily, every day. So when was the last time our Lord looked at you square in the eyes and said, who do you say that I am? And your response was not, oh, you're, you're one of the options. You're the big guy upstairs. You're the divine butler. No, he's Lord. He's your commanding officer. He has authority over every area of your life and my life. And it means we have to learn to die to these things that don't actually bring life. I love my favorite line from Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, Augustine writes. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That you and I cannot transfer the deed of our hearts and souls to someone or something else and expect to live the life that he's called. And so on this side of things, the, the things that we see that we naturally think, oh, if I had that, I would be joyful. If I had that, I would be happy. You and I have to learn to actually die to those things that we may really live. We actually have to let our own ego be put to death. Now, how do you find out, if you don't already know, sometimes the Lord, because he's so gracious and can speak sometimes to us so clearly, you'll just know, oh, this is the thing that's in the way. As we look at this and you think about what, what have you put first, you may, you may know what it is. I'll tell you what can be really challenging about this is often it's good, it's good things. It's not always the obvious bad things that are in the way. Sometimes it's good things that you've, you've made an idol of your own heart. And until that is put on the altar before the Lord, you will make your life and whatever else you're loving miserable. I find another way to find out what it is that I really worship and follow is, what am I afraid of? What do I fear? What makes me anxious? What would I be afraid of losing? What am I really protective about or what am I really selfish about? These are things that help me to, to, to discover the things that I often trust in, in instead of in him. And what scripture tells us is that we can't sort of live with all our temptations of idols sort of at the forefront and have a little Jesus thrown in. It actually calls us to die to those things. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, scripture says, put them to death. And it's not easy. No one's perfect at it. It's a daily journey, but you have to learn to transfer the deed of your heart over to him. So Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he looks at his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? In Jesus's day, we know the cross. It's become so um, ordinary in a way that we have to think and reflect on its meaning and the meaning of the symbol uh, for someone in Jesus's time and day, like he hadn't gone to the cross yet. And so this wasn't like a necklace they were all wearing. Like, yeah, we're people of the cross. And so when Jesus said these initial words, he says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, 
take up his cross. Why would somebody take up their cross in the first century? Where were they going if they took up their cross? They were going to die. They were headed to death. They were headed to an execution. What a, what a smelling salt, crazy, like burn in your nose thing to say. That if you want to really experience life, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That if you really want to live, you actually have to die to self. The person who loves his life will lose it, Jesus says in verse 23, while the person who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, as we end this teaching of Jesus, I want to remind us, what is it that motivates? Where does the power come from to change me from being a selfish, egotistical, narcissistic person that only cares about my own well-being and not really the well-being of others, surely not some deity out there? What is it that transforms a heart to being so devoted? We have such a cloud of witnesses. If we were to go through Christian history and see Christians who have given up lives, families, careers, possessions, because they found out Jesus is Lord. How, were they just better than you and me? Did they just try harder? I wanna tell you, no. The good news is that the grace of God can transform the object of your heart's desire. That, that God's grace, that, that Jesus, the one who's holding the smelling salt, is actually the one who leaves everything in heaven to come down to earth, who humbles himself. That Jesus, the very Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, had it all and he gave it all up and he goes to the cross and he dies so that you and I might live. This begins to transform the object of what is actually Lord of your heart is when you see his love poured out. Yes, it's personal. I was very careful in saying that he's not your private tribal Messiah, but he does wanna be your personal Lord and Savior. Have you come to know him as that? Do you know him not only as, a, as somebody who wants to help and be involved, but he's actually Lord and, and everything in your life becomes a way of worshiping and honoring and follow, following him. You have to see his love poured out for you, which is why as we come to the table, we get an opportunity to be reminded of that. That, that this Christ's offering of his own body, his own blood, becomes the way of transforming us to live as one who is actually following him. We don't do it on self-effort, performance. That's why the Galatians reading you heard today is so significant. This, this, is, this is of the Spirit. This is totally God's grace. It's not something we can do on our own. And so, Heavenly Father, would you draw us to yourself? Would you hold the smelling salt under our nose until we wake up to the reality of who you are and what it means to follow you. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.